0: Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Burn, welcome to what I hope is the is, is the first episode. Thanks for joining. Good to be here. So, Bern. Uh, some of the uh, people listening have been longtime followers. Uh, some of the people listening uh, wish they were longtime readers, but uh, don't, don't, don't haven't yet made the time. And and maybe uh, you know, maybe the podcast will, will help them uh, get get hooked. For for those people, w- let's give just a little bit of uh, some background context. H- how do you describe your your moonshot? Yeah, I've heard you describe it in the past of trying to describe uh, you know sort of the present as if it were history, or or doing something li- like like. Uh, you know really focusing on the intersection of finance and technology because it's rare that some people really deeply understand both H- how do you describe sort of the moonshot or the the threat of the work that you're trying to do
1: yeah i think the the description changes all the time which i'm sure is frustrating like i can't really do a branding campaign or anything because the branding you know it subtly drifts or come up with a new catchphrase or something like i do think One thing I try to do is I try to write things in a way that I think will make a lot of sense in the future. So I try to write about the things that actually matter and the things that if they don't matter in the sense of they're going to cause these sweeping historical changes, like they matter in the sense of they tell you about what's going on right now. So you know, spend a lot of time talking about AI and um, its its economic impact and you know where that's going, but I think someone is just talking about like the day to day. You know, here's how people are trying to use AI in the workplace. Like, and here's here's where it works. Here's where it doesn't. Like, I think some of that is going to be useful context in the long term, just to understand how the deployment of this technology went. So, like. I don't think it's going to be hugely transformative for the world that you can take a bunch of bullet points, convert them into a really nice-looking PowerPoint presentation automatically, and then the recipient of that PowerPoint presentation converts it back into bullet points. Like, you know, that's that's not like a huge deal. It's not earth-shattering or anything. But what it does tell you is something about like the the transaction cost of internal communication in big organizations and how there are certain things that you can't just say, in terse bullet points, like you actually have to demonstrate that you put some effort into it and some presentation into it and that you double check things and um, that we have like this, this layer of signaling and then this layer of actual information transmission. And um, they aren't completely unrelated. And the, depending on the the context, it changes like there's that, you know, that well-known phenomenon where you can tell how, how senior someone is in an organization by whether their email has like a salutation at the beginning and then it has paragraph and paragraph and you know in conclusion x and then someone who's way high up in the organization like they they don't realize that their email client actually has a box under the subject line they're just typing these cryptic very poorly spelled things and you know if they want to make this email really formal and like you know extremely pleasant polite communication they might add thanks, but spell it THX to the end of the the message. So like, clearly there are some contexts in which you don't have to make a big deal about these things, but it's like, I think that is, that is something that is interesting in part because it's the application of a new technology and in part because it's a way to think about social norms and how people actually interact. And that's, so that that brings me to the the thing you mentioned on finance and tech. Like I, I spent a lot of time thinking about both because those are two domains that are extremely meta and they're changing extremely fast and they're both very reactive to changes in the real world so they they basically are like this very sensitive instrument that you can use to measure both the the permanent things and also the new and different things and um So that's another, you know, there's like a daily newsletter has to be timely, but I do try to aim for some level of timelessness where you can go back and read a piece that I wrote a year or two ago, and hopefully it holds up well. Ideally, it holds up better. I think that's, it's really hard, like it's a really high standard to do that, especially if you're publishing basically every day. But um, I do, at the back of my mind, try to ask myself when I write something like, is this something that someone who signs up for the newsletter in a couple of years and it's going through the archives. Like, will they be glad they read this? Or they'd be like, well, you know, I'm sure that seemed like it mattered a whole lot in, you know, late October, 2023, but it was also irrelevant by November. So why why did you even type it?
0: Is there a piece or, or, or broad topic area that you're most proud that you published in, you know, 2020 or, or beforehand or, you know, within the last few years that you think stands up even better since you wrote it? I
1: wrote a piece... I'd have to check if it was late 2020 or late 2021, but I wrote a piece on AI as a general purpose technology and its economic impact and how the usual pattern with general purpose technologies is that they do destroy a lot of jobs in the long run, but in the short term, there's actually this deployment phase where they create way more jobs and um, you can actually view like the American middle class as being basically invented by the Ford Motor Company. because. They had extremely high turnover in um, the 1910s period, I believe, and they realized that they could just pay people a ton of money um, relative to other unskilled labor jobs and um, they'd be able to keep people around. But they also enforced a bunch of these um, basically middle class social norms. like They had um, inspectors who would go to people's houses and, and see if they were treating their kids okay, see if the house was clean, um, see if these employees were spending their munificent wages on, on whiskey, or if they were saving money. So it kind of enforced these norms that are, I think, just much more ubiquitous now, and also created this class of people where they could actually have a job that Was enough money to support a family, enough money to put some money aside for later, but it wasn't something where they needed to get some capital to start or they needed some special skills to do it. Like it was something available to just about anyone. So, but at the same time, those, those automotive jobs were actually destroying other jobs. So they were destroying a lot of jobs in, um, you know the the horse and horse adjacent industry is a lot of jobs cleaning the streets because horses produce waste and there they um, ended up having this second order effect of destroying a lot of jobs from um, urban grocers who were not um, the, like the old the pre-car model for grocers was that there was a store you'd go there basically every day and you'd pick up enough food for the next 24 hours and um, once people had cars and once those cars had trunks it actually made sense to have a much larger store that had, um, it could spread its fixed costs over a lot more and, um, could use a lot less labor to sell much higher volumes of food. So, um, it ended up destroying like a lot of small businesses and replacing them with larger stores, which eventually consolidated into chains that consolidation is still happening, but, um, we're all better off because one, you know, the food is a whole lot cheaper. And my, my, uh, grandfather actually ran one of those little, little grocery stores and, um, he was actually invited to invest in and sell to a um, sell to a larger chain that was doing supermarkets that he decided not to. But he, he managed to like keep running the store at a time when the economics were still semi viable. But like that kind of job got destroyed because those stores were very those small stores were very labor inefficient. And um, that is a second order effect of the car as a general purpose technology that just makes it easier to have this widely distributed transit system. I think you know if if, uh, if cars had been invented after crypto the word decentralized would be thrown around all the time when talking about them and um, yeah we, we would talk about like you know buses and trains as these single points of failure and things anyway it, like it destroyed a lot of jobs but created a lot of other jobs and um, the thing is like over really long periods i do think there is net job destruction from general purpose technology so what you actually want is to make sure that there's at least one general purpose technology that's kicking into its intensive growth phase where it's very labor intensive, right as the other one is at this point where it's getting more and more efficient and you need fewer and fewer people to keep it going. So you basically need, like there's a deployment cycle and a replacement cycle for a lot of physical technologies. And when the deployment cycle is happening, like when cars per capita is going up, car sales are massive and cars in the fifties were, I think something like a quarter of GDP. It was like cars and car related things. We don't need to spend a quarter of GDP on cars now because people have them. They last a lot longer, and so we don't need as many. So, at like that, that post-deployment phase eliminated a lot of car jobs, eliminated a lot of jobs at suppliers, um, made the companies a lot more margin conscious and cost conscious. So they, um, you know, they they didn't really need to be as generous with the unions. Although we'll see, it seems like they're they're moving back in that direction you know, by the time that was happening, by the time the auto sector was shrinking, you had other sectors that were growing. And so um I was I was kind of you know, I, I feel good about having written that piece on AI and where it's being deployed and how much how much effort it takes. Because I think the thing that is worth thinking about when you think about ai as a job job destroyer versus job creator is that what ai is doing to the average white-collar worker who can be replaced by chat or where most of the work can be replaced by chat gpt what it's doing is it's it it changes the expense of having that worker from operating expense to capital expenditure because now that person whatever they do can be an input into a model that can eventually do the thing they did and do it pretty quickly pretty cheaply um with you know Probably, hopefully some reasonable tolerance for error that means that it's actually worthwhile for them to continuously do those things and do like do the edge case things like focus on the things where it's not in the model and then train the model to handle those so you're basically training this this meta version of you that is doing the things you have already demonstrated that you can do and that you can kind of do in your sleep but it's doing those in parallel and then you would spend your time doing doing other stuff or you'd spend your time at the more metal layer. Like in software, it seems like a lot of people have sort of promoted themselves from software engineer to software architect because the the actual engineering of, you know, we're just going to, um, we're going to figure out the relevant library, use it to solve the relevant problem, put out some boilerplate, tweak some variable names, et cetera you know, that part is is now much more automated. We have a, a higher level language in terms, like in the form of um, code completion tools on top of the high level languages that we typically use. But that actually puts a higher value on figuring out the architecture of the product correctly. Because now, um, like, if you write code with ChatGPT, you can very quickly write something that is this buggy mess that borrows different code styles from, you know, different different things you create have different coding styles. Um, the system sort of forgets what it's trying to do. So now you have to remember what you're trying to do. And that is generally a higher value added function. Like that is something that the more senior person on the engineering team is supposed to be doing is remembering, like having this mental model of how does this whole thing work? How does it fit together? What are our design principles? And then they, you know, they used to implement that by having the having other people in the team do different parts of it, and now the the other person on the team is is ChatGPT or is, um, you know, a, a copilot copilot style tool or Mutable, which is a copilot style tool that I invested in. So, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting change, and we'll be hitting the the non software engineer parts of the white collar workforce increasingly over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, what do you think about the um, argument? Uh, that so much of our economy is actually bullshit jobs um, that are not automatable. And, and the ones that will be automatable are like the most productive uh, people, um, but that there's a high percentage of bullshit jobs that um, you know will still exist. I
1: don't know. There's, there's some percentage, like clearly, especially in large organizations that have somewhat messed up incentives. There are some people doing kind of fake work or they're working on a project that doesn't is never going to see the light of day or you have know, different teams working at cross purposes within a company. On the other hand, the existence of those does imply that there's some real value being created, and um, you know people people will sometimes talk about the slow shipping cadence of big tech companies that it just it takes Google forever to launch a feature, and then people within those companies will say, well, yeah, we have all these review processes and all these little factions within the company that want to defend their territory, and so of course it takes a long time. Like the actual writing code is pretty straightforward, but figuring out what you can launch and you know fighting for the little scraps of screen real estate and then telling the lawyers it's not a disaster from a privacy or regulatory perspective. We're finding out from the lawyers that it is and you have to change something about it. Like that stuff takes time. That can only exist if there was something of real value created and if the the actual output of that process does eventually produce something of value and doesn't risk the existing value. So I think in that case, yeah, it's it's hard to argue that those are fake jobs. But I guess there, you know, there are other cases where the jobs are pretty fake. On the other hand, if they're already fake, it increases in efficiency don't really affect them. Like I think that argument would. More justify that the job function would get eliminated and the person would have already been fired. But um, if they're doing something of zero productivity and their productivity triples, then it doesn't actually change anything. Like it doesn't, you know, the mystery of why this person has a job is still there. It doesn't actually change the phenomenon. I did find it funny that um, one of the one of the first official looking messages that uh, got produced by chat GPT was um, some university, I forget what happened. I think there was like a, a shooting or similar disaster somewhere else. And they sent a campus wide email talking about how they knew that this was traumatic for students, but the email ended with a note saying it had been generated by chat GPT. And there was this huge controversy over it. But it, to me, it felt like, well, you know, the, to the extent that we need that email, like it is kind of this ritualistic thing of it's someone's job to be the person whose job is to care about these things. And it doesn't really matter that much if their job got slightly more efficient because it was already like the content of the email really didn't matter. Like, you know, there's no one is collecting like the, the greatest HR memoranda ever, or like, you know, the greatest DEI, you know, internal communications. It's uh you know, nobody, if you started a streaming service that was just going to stream different, um, you know, corporate policy training videos, I don't think you'd have a ton of people who would just tune in for fun. So, yeah, I think that stuff. Um, I don't think I don't think AI really affects the the fake jobs thing, other than hopefully creating enough productivity growth so we can all have fake jobs that are fulfilling to us
0: in our particular ways. It's funny. my friend suggested there should be an idea, there there should be a service that provides rich parents whose kids aren't doing interesting things with their lives with like fake jobs that give them high status, you know, positions and make them feel like they're doing something important and, uh, and interesting. So they can, you know, not feel like failures to their other parent friends.
1: I don't know what percentage of the nonprofit sector you're (laughs) describing right now. (laughs) Um, also like literary magazines and, um, you have to put art in quotation marks when you're describing when someone else is describing your job like yeah there's there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just this person is not necessarily excited to do things that the rest of society considers a big contribution but their parents do have money so find something that sounds cool
0: and let them do it hey everybody eric here with a word from our sponsors Going back to, to you and your writing for people who aren't or are less familiar with you and they, they say, hey, who is burned like, you know, some names that come to mind to me are, are you know, so like Ben Thompson, Tyler Cowen, Matt Levine, you know, if they had a baby or something. I, I don't know how you uh, think about that characterization, but is there like a historical um, figure that you that has played the role that you're you know, playing or seeking to play as a thinker or writer?
1: That's an interesting question because I think there are two ways to answer it. One is to look at things right now, and then one is to look ahead. And so I'd say right now, the financial writer who I really admire, who was like the first really great financial writer I had access to was um, Adam Smith, not The Economist, but the 60s and 70s era journalist. And he was, that was a pseudonym. He was, he wrote these pieces for New York Magazine and was kind of Michael Lewis before Michael Lewis was cool and also before Michael Lewis was uncool. Um, And he, he just writes these really evocative, very 1960s, not in the hippie sense, but in the sense of like what, what maybe, I mean, every, I guess saying it feels 1960s, like that always evokes different things to different people. But I'm thinking of like, there was still an establishment there were still wasps they were still basically in charge but i think they had this sense that they were not going to be like they were the last generation of wasps that would just have this straight path from prep school to you know one of three universities and then straight to one of the big investment banks or or you know the state department or something like there was this period where there was a very well defined wasp track and if you were born of those families and were male, you were on it. Um, and I think they, they had the sense that that was gone, but they, they had gotten, they'd gotten into finance when it was still sort of happening, but there was like all this change in who, like which companies matter, which people matter, which jobs matter. Um, and there was also a lot of, um, you know, a lot of social change that wasn't just the hippies had discovered drugs and were doing drugs. And actually the, like the the drug thing was kind of a wasp thing before it was a hippie thing, and the hippie thing itself was pretty pretty waspy. Um, it's there's some video I saw on Twitter a while ago of a hippie being interviewed. He had gone to San Francisco and during the summer of love, and he just has the most aristocratic voice. Like the Roman numeral after his name just keeps on incrementing as he keeps on talking. It's uh it's amazing. He sounds like William F Buckley or something. Um, so. Like the, the ones who were still on the professional, respectable wasp track, like they were, you know, they were reading Freud and arguing about him and um, they were experimenting with the, you know, the, the white collar drugs, the antidepressants and speed and things like that. And so they were sort of getting used to this idea of the world's in flux, it's moving faster than expected, the old certainties are gone, and um, and yet life is really good. Like they're, they're still making money. Um, and they still have these high status jobs. And so the Adam Smith was one of those people went to a good school, got a finance job. I think he worked at a mutual fund for a while and he started writing and, um, it was just written. He wrote the money game is the the classic, um, super money is also really good. It's, it's good for, among other things, it has an early profile of Warren Buffett and, talks about how um, you know how Buffett is different from all of these other investors and is much more thoughtful and much more obsessive about research and you can you can sort of tell from reading that that like this, is, this was written when Buffett had shut down his hedge funds so he was nominally retired but his idea of having fun in retirement was things like he heard that um, one state's bonds were less creditworthy than another state's bonds because the first state had been skimping on highway repairs. so we went on a long road trip just to look at the highways. In order to figure out if he should buy the bonds. So you could kind of get a sense from that, that this guy cannot actually retire. And that when he goes back to trying to maximize his net worth full time, that it will, uh, it will probably work. So yeah, he's, he's someone who I like as both, you know, he's a practitioner. um, He's, he's kind of part of the establishment, but very self-aware that there is such a thing as the establishment and that, you know, he, that it's, its role is changing. And I think that's a, that's a good perch to have as a writer. And then the other people that you mentioned, so um, Stratechery and Muddy Stuff and Martial Revolution, um, I think those are all really flattering uh, sites to be compared to. And um, I read them all avidly and uh, like them all. I I think I, um, so I would say I don't, um, I, I definitely do not know as much about Streaming economics, as Ben Thompson. I definitely do not read as many books as Tyler Cowen, and I think Matt Levine knows a whole lot more than I do about a corporate law, b derivatives, um, how to price them, and how to sell them. But um, I do try to be at you know in in that um, in that Venn diagram
0: somewhere. Yeah, I think you know the uh, the intersection of what they write about you know m- more than the than, than they do uh, in that your broader. Um, Ben has this, you know, one of his main ideas is aggregation theory, uh, you know, crudely summarized as, as you know, pre-internet, um, sort of the world was supply constrained, um, and, uh, the internet has brought the marginal cost of distribution, you know, up to, to zero and so many things. And so now instead of supply constrained, we're, we're demand constrained and that sort of changes the sort of fundament, fundamental economics of internet businesses. And a lot of his writings go back to that big idea. Um, do you feel like you have a, a big idea that you keep coming back to? Maybe on stuff. No. Or... Uh,
1: I, I I think, you know, true to form being the intersection of um, the writings of three people who also write about a really wide variety of topics. Um, I do not have one big mean model. Um, I have lots of little models that are mostly not original to me, but um, that I find really useful. So one of those is thinking about things in option terms and... Really, what that means is thinking about whether whether volatility is good for you or bad for you, and thinking about your your sensitivity to volatility, how you can affect it, what your incentives are in in different outcomes. So, like the classic one, um, I did a I co-wrote a piece, or actually, my um, guy I would hired who uh, went back to school after this, but I he he wrote a piece, and I did some little edits contributions to it on um, life as a call option, where the basic thinking was when you are early in your career you are out of the money like the the default outcome is not not excellent not amazing because most people just don't have amazing you know astonishing or great career outcomes so if that's what you're targeting you actually want to aim for maximum volatility and that means that you want to do things that are high variance even if the expected value is lower than the expected value of doing the smart thing or you know doing the doing the straightforward Thing. Um, I was talking to someone a while ago who was um, thinking about different career opportunities, and he said that if he were just trying to maximize net worth, he, like all of his friends, would be fang maxing. And I thought that was a great way to put it fang maxing. And yeah, in, in expected value terms, you probably, you know, if you are capable of being in, you know, of starting a tech company or of joining a really early stage company, probably you're. Your likely outcome from being at or staying at one of the big tech companies is better. Um, on the other hand, if you think that um, that you could actually achieve more than you know the median software engineer at Google or Amazon or something, then um, being on that path is actually it actually has this high opportunity cost. Like you should try to do the high variance thing early on. You get more information from that, so you can figure out like, am I? Am I actually really good? Am I just overconfident like everyone else? And um, am I learning that the hard way? Um, it's usually a whole lot better to learn that kind of thing the hard way when you're like 22 and you know you can sleep on a friend's couch versus if you're in your 30s and have kids and a mortgage. Um, it's just harder harder to fail, harder to stomach the possibility of failure. So yeah, I think that the options framework is, is really useful. It's really useful in a lot of cases because sometimes the... The muddiness of the option shifts and it totally flips the incentives from you want to maximize volatility to want to minimize it. Um, you see this a lot with um, companies where as they grow, they, they tend to start out pretty open and then as they grow, they sort of lock things down. So... Um, you know they want more of the content on their platform to stay on their platform. They want more of it to be native. Um, they want to make it harder to ping arbitrary users and communicate them, to communicate with them without paying some kind of toll. They want to make it harder to game the system to get organic traffic. They want to make sure that you're paying for whatever scalable traffic you're getting, et cetera. So they have a, a similar kind of dynamic where. Early on, they just want stuff to happen. Um, You know, early YouTube was a great place to watch South Park episodes in ten-minute increments, and for a while, it was just it was positive expected value for them. Um, They they were doing the high variance thing, but basically, anytime they would get sued. The, the entity that was getting sued would be very small compared to the entity that was actually fighting the lawsuit. So, you know, if they get sued in year one and by the time it gets to trial, it's like year four, they have substantially larger legal resources. They have a lot more leverage as a distribution tool. And so they can negotiate a better settlement. Um, in, in YouTube's case, they also got bought by Google. So that made it even easier. But now, you know, YouTube does not want to be a piracy site anymore. They, um, they definitely want the... Um, they want IP owners to feel like YouTube is another place where they can monetize their intellectual property. And then they also want there to be YouTube specific stuff that is locked down to YouTube that you can't find anywhere else that you would actually either pay for or you'd be very loyal to YouTube in particular for. Um, so that's that's one mental model. I think another another good mental model is um, the idea that if you, like we all very like have different things we're relatively good at, different things we're relatively bad at. And the more extremely good you are in one domain, the more likely that your life will be defined by problems in some other domain. So if you think of Facebook, like they have a really, really good engineering culture and they were really, really good at growth. They definitely prioritize those two things. And so their problems right now have basically nothing to do with that. Their problems are things like, Politicians regulating them, or investors pushing back on the metaverse, or you know, uh, I mean, I guess you know, TikTok is also like it's a it's on the growth and engineering axis, but um, they they ended up solving these problems like solving their the problems they had a comparative advantage at so effectively that they scaled up to the point that all of their problems were things they were actively bad at and. This happens to uh, a lot of different institutions, um, and you know you could see it happening in the opposite direction with the federal government, where they are you know really really good at um, building some kind of consensus to spend a lot of money, and then relatively bad at figuring out what is the ha- highest ROI project to invest in in order to reduce inflation, as you know as per the Inflation Reduction Act. Like um, the the part that was relatively easy was putting together a big like. You know, you compromise between, I want a bunch of money in X, I want a bunch of money in Y. Well, let's do X and Y together, and now we have compromised. But then actually converting that into, you know, the ground is broken, the factory is being assembled and things like that. That's a totally different category of problem that they're relatively worse at. So
0: we have all this capital allocated to these things, and then things are you know, happening very, very gradually. Let's go back to something you, you mentioned earlier around Michael Lewis, uh, sort of the rise and fall of Michael Lewis. And you've written a couple, you know, recent pieces. And that's what we'll do in the show more broadly is, is uh, kind of touch on and go deeper on some, some of the pieces. You, you know, you've written a bunch about FTX, obviously, over the past past couple of years. And, and most recently, Michael Lewis's book came out. Um, let's, let's reflect on both, you know, Michael Lewis. You know, some people psychoanalyze him and say, hey, he uh, in SBF. You know, his daughter passed away, you know, tragically in the last year and in SBF, maybe he fell in love with, uh, with him as if it were his son. And when he, uh, you know, the FDX collapsed, he couldn't sort of really get rid of that dream because you read the first 75% of the book. And there's nothing really about the, the it's almost the same as if he, you know, wrote it before the, the crash because he did. Um, and then also that he was just taken in by the sort of like, uh, utilitarian sort of left-leaning you know uh effective liberal uh or, or rational liberal and that he uh, he he wanted that to exist so bad that he kind of sympathized with them what, what what's your uh what, what's your analysis on on the michael lewis
1: i enjoyed the book i am i'm quoted in the book and talked to michael lewis briefly um as part of that and that was fun because i i did get a sense from that of just how how he talks to people and how he gets them to talk to him which is you know if you read other michael lewis books one of the questions is like why did anyone tell him that And I think some of that actually comes back to his own literary lineage, where he is a huge fan of Tom Wolfe. I think they have like some vague autobiographical similarities, and um, and Wolfe was like his skill was being being in the mix, like being among the people who he was writing about, but not becoming one of them he, you know, he was, when he was writing about the hippies, he was not a hippie. He was clearly this Southern gentleman and literature or whatever. Um, not, not a hippie. And similarly, when he was on trading floors, writing about, um, you know, writing about the vanities, he was clearly not among, like, he was not, not one of the traders and was not trying to fit in with that. But I think just faded into the, into the background enough that he could really observe what was going on. And, um, Bonfire is is really worth reading as this snapshot of of the 80s in New York and finance and stuff like that. Um and I think Lewis Lewis tried to do that and was kind of trying to be in the background for a lot of interesting discussions. I guess at one level is it absolutely necessary for one more person to say stealing is really bad and stealing billions of dollars is even worse than that? Like I don't I don't know how much we're losing by not having that um, in in the Michael Lewis book. I think we did get some really good anecdotes. We got some really damning anecdotes. Like we, you know, there's there are conversations where people are basically saying, you know, I I know that SBF like telling SBF like, hey, you know how we both committed fraud together? Let's get our story straight so that we can get away with fraud. Um, which I guess Lewis might have viewed as more like they they had sloppy record keeping which is true so maybe they just don't have some of the background information that they would want to have they don't have some of the records they want to have and they should just you know review what they do have and what's missing so that they don't accidentally say something inconsistent like that, that is you know an innocuous explanation for that but it's just really hard given the accumulation of facts to to view this as innocuous like i i thought it was at first i did not actually in the very first few days after FTX collapsed, I thought that they had had a run on the bank because they are—they're um, a futures firm that does—that did um, ran an exchange and also cleared its own trades. So. If you do that, you're on the hook if some of your customers lose money and you can theoretically lose all of your backup funds and be wiped out. I think if I'd spent more time thinking about that thesis and working on that thesis, I would have tried to find an example of a crypto product that had blown out in one direction or another where I could say, Look, you know the average, the aggregate losses in Solana in the last week were you know X billions of dollars, and that's more than FTX raised. So that's probably what wiped them out. But um, there wasn't really anything like that. Now it turns out, and this is well after the fact, and actually after the Lewis book came out, that um, there were a few cases where FTX, you know, FTX had the associated hedge fund Alameda and. Alameda, they did say explicitly was the liquidity provider of last resort, and um, when SPF would give interviews, he would say they'd never actually had to tap into that, but that was not true. There was a case where there was a bug in the margining system. Someone was able to basically have infinite buying power in some token called um, mobile coin, and what you do if you have infinite buying power and no ethics whatsoever is you just buy an infinite amount and then you have very valuable collateral and then you um, withdraw some of the you know some of the money from that um, and then you uh, then you have money and so um, the trader in question did that and if since everyone is trading futures like when mobile coins price collapsed, the short sellers, there was just not enough money to make good on the short sellers' positions. And so Alameda apparently took on that loss. And I could see doing that a couple times actually adding up to the the balance sheet hole. Um, but I think there's also, like, it's much easier to get to the size of that balance sheet hole if you also look at things like all the political donations and Anthropic and other, other big investments and loans to insiders and loans to insiders' family members and, you know, buying houses and things. Um, like... I think, like there was, as of the day of the collapse, there was a perfectly coherent argument that was they had very very poor record keeping and um, they you know had poor internal controls, did not keep track of what money was where, and turned out to have spent more money than they actually had. But once once you read about things like um, FTX changing its source code to allow Alameda to have up to $65 billion in liquidity and that Alameda, you know, FTX, like SBF was lying about the Alameda and FTX relationship and, um, you know, that they're like, people were pointing out to him that there's this shortfall and it's really bad. And then, um, you know, him having Caroline Ellison prepare seven different balance sheets and, uh, you know, having these notes like, oh, I can't include that. Um, like at that point, you just can't argue that they were being legitimate. On the other hand, you you know, there there can be this interesting and this happens with a lot of frauds where like there are there are a handful of cases where a fraud starts out as a fraud. Someone decides they're going to run a Ponzi scheme, they run a Ponzi scheme, it blows up eventually. There are a lot more cases from what I've seen where the fraud is actually this very slow increase in the fraudiness of behavior. So um, like with General Electric in the 90s, they didn't start out with faking their numbers. What they started out with was things like, it's the last day of the quarter. If we get this customer to buy you know, one more, like commit to buy one more gas turbine today instead of tomorrow, we'll beat our numbers. And that's really good. And we'll promise to make it up to them later. And um, you know, the more you shift things earlier in time, the bigger the gap is between what your company's actual economics are and what your company's reported numbers are. And then you start to have to do shadier things. So then it becomes, well, we're really not going to make our numbers this quarter, but if we sell our headquarters and book that as a profit, then we will actually hit our numbers. But now you don't own your headquarters and you have a lease instead of a mortgage and you're probably paying more and you can't do that again. So like over time, um, like anytime you, anytime you promise a steadier return that you can actually achieve with your underlying economics, you are basically making a martingale bet. Like eventually... There will be some outcome that is outside the bounds of what you can handle and what you can fake, and then the whole thing collapses. And it's typically in the late stage of frauds where they actually do a lot of value destroying things instead of kind of value shifting things. Like it just it didn't impair GE's economics all that much that GE Plastics was trying to stuff the channel at the end of the quarter, or that GE Capital was. Maybe lending more money than they should have to particular customers, or whatever. Um, that that didn't massively hurt the economics. But when you get to the point where things are falling apart, and your company's in a liquidity crisis, and um, and you know you you absolutely need cash right now, that's when you start doing pretty like very one sided deals with people who are willing to provide liquidity, or you uh, yeah, or you just make business decisions that are actively bad, but that happen to generate a little bit of cash. Yeah. So I, th- I think there's like, there's probably like one version is there's that fraud gradient and they got fraudier and fraudier over time. And the other version, which I, I think you should basically treat it as the subtext of the Michael Lewis book was that, that there's a decent chance that SBF was um, not actually making very much money the whole time. And that um, he, cause like so there's this really revealing story early in the FTX book, which Michael Lewis sets up this story so that he can bring it up later on where, The story is that um, Alameda misplaced millions of dollars of some crypto token. I forget which one it was. Was it Ripple? Like lost 4 million of Ripple. Not like they had a position that dropped by a lot, but like they literally could not find the Ripple. And then a bunch of employees quit Alameda because this was such an irresponsible thing. And then as soon as they quit, SBF finds the Ripple and he tracks it down to a Korean exchange and then he turns his favorite trading algorithm back on after the old team had turned it off because it was losing money, and suddenly it's making money. Like, if that is true, then that is um, at least you know in rationalist terms, like you you update your priors a little bit to SBF is sloppy, but he always comes through in the end. On the other hand. It's probably not true. I don't think it actually happened. I think SBF was lying. I think that he did not actually find the ripple. Um, there are ex Alameda employees who say he definitely did not find the ripple. Um, they one of them and this is on a rationalist forum somewhere posted about how slow the trading system he was using was and I just it's pretty rare for a trading system, you know, a systematic set of signals to lose money for a while and then you turn it off and then you randomly turn it back on again. And for reasons you can't discern, it's suddenly profitable. Like, I guess that could happen if someone else had been running a slightly faster version of that system and they'd turn theirs off. And so he was getting all the trades that this person would have been getting instead, but there's no real reason to think that that happened. Like if it were profitable, they wouldn't have whoever else was doing the trades would not have stopped doing them. So yeah, I just, I don't think it happened that way at all. And um, so I think like that, that anecdote and the fact that SBF was sharing that anecdote with Lewis actually made me update more towards, Hey, what if Alameda had borrowed a bunch of money from various high net worth rationalists, which we know did actually happen, but if they'd lost most of that money and then what if they had started an exchange as this last ditch effort to make a bunch of money back? And then you get back to the optionality thing. So if you are running a an exchange and a hedge fund and you actually have this big hole in your balance sheet, you are out of the money. You want to actually max- maximize the variance. So instead of just quietly trading, you want to become famous and you want to be high profile and you want to be synonymous with your industry so that if things get really bad, you actually get helped by the other participants in your industry. So, you know, there's... There's a sense in which maybe he was actually gunning for a Binance bailout, you know, years before Binance was actually, um, you know, involved in that collapse or, um, you know, maybe, maybe he was trying to get to the point where, um, FTX was too big to fail. Like crypto gets more ubiquitous. FTX is the center of the crypto ecosystem. And so they, they do need and get a bailout if things go bad. But, um, the downside to pursuing those high variance strategies is that they, they are often value destructive and, um. Generally, they fail. So, um, yeah, it's a it, it's it's a nice options parable. I did actually in the book. I really loved the chapter on Jane Street, um, and because it had this wonderful description of Jane Street trading the uh, twenty sixteen election and how they figured out that the market was reacting to CNN what CNN saw, but you could actually get the. The results live if you scraped every state's website and they're all inconsistent things. And so, um, you know, you could basically do like, I assumed that was what 538 was doing. Maybe not, or maybe the traders were watching TV instead of reloading the dial. But um, it was a good story about how how they think, and, um, you know, how you, how you try to find an information advantage and then you execute the trade, you know, there's some level of uncertainty. And then the best part was, um, the trade actually lost a ton of money because he was like, Jane street was shorting a lot because whenever, before the, um, before the election, anytime Trump had good news in the polls, stocks went down. Um, and then on election night, stocks crashed massively. So they made a ton of money initially and then stocks rallied, um, And there's like, there's dispute still over whether that was like, people just decided actually Trump is good for business or people decide, like people watched Trump's acceptance speech. I think the acceptance speech happened while the rally had started. But yeah, for whatever reason, stocks did really well after that. So Jane Street lost a ton of money, but their internal review was basically the trade made sense. The process made sense. Like that was the correlation up to that point. Um, It would have been wildly irresponsible to be like. We're going to build this really, really elaborate system, and then we're going to do exactly the opposite of what the backtest would say to do. That would just be crazy. So um, I thought that was that was a good look at how how systematic firms can think and operate and just how to be rigorous in the intrinsically uncertain world of financial markets. So that was nice. If he'd published that as just a separate article,
0: I think there would be very little criticism and it would have been good. But overall, you, you think it's a big loss for Michael Lewis, big L, because he got duped basically, or-
1: I mean, I don't. I don't know. He's doing this weird thing where he will sometimes indicate that because FTX invested in Anthropic and Anthropic has been marked up massively, that the the FTX investors may have been made whole, and that might be true. Um, FTX claims are currently trading at, in the low fifties, like fifty cents on the dollar, a little bit more. Um, so the market does not think that'll happen yet, but we'll see. However, um it's not actually defense against fraud if you made money. Um, you know, Martin Schwelly actually did time for, for that. And like if you just turn the story into, hey, you know, I, I stole your wallet and I went to a casino, but I actually had a really good night, and so I was able to give you the money I stole back and you know, you didn't lose anything. Like there's it's not good to have a legal system that's like I
0: donated to Joe Biden.
1: Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I do think I do think he probably got got too close to, to that source, but the writing is still good. I, I actually think like the book is, it's a fun read. If you don't know what happened, um, if you treat it like it would have been much better as a novel, it would have been a novel that was just obviously based on SBF but had a happy ending. Like I thought that the very last little beat in the story was wonderful. I don't know if you've read it, but the last detail at the end was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Don't spoil it, but yeah, it was nice. Um, I don't think it made the whole thing worth it, but it was it was good.
0: I, the Caroline, um, you know, SBF, you know, I, I was rooting for them. I mean, uh, what a tragic. Uh... I was
1: too. I I actually felt like that was a case where he could have gotten closer to the source because there's he does quote um, Caroline's Tumblr and he says that she is sounding optimistic, but she says something like, "I think my future is to be a plate who's being ju- like a plate for an alpha or something like that," which. In that terminology, a plate is like you're juggling plates. Like she's one of several girls, so she's not actually saying, "Hey, this is awesome." She's saying, "I am going to settle for this, but it's going to be terrible." And um, so, I thought that was a little bit tragic. Like her her Tumblr is very, very entertaining, and um, there's it, it does show this, this interesting evolution that usually goes in the opposite direction. Like usually people don't start out very. Like nerd, social conservative, and then become polyamorous over time. Usually, they are they're like the poly thing sounds really interesting, and then they decide that that is actually pretty dysfunctional for them, and then nerd out on okay, what is the evolutionary reason that we'd want to be monogamous, and you know why why does like is is tradition subject to the same evolutionary selective pressures as everything else, Um, and and yeah, so you can end up because because you took the sort of 35,000 foot, highly theoretical, mathy, you know, expected value maximizing type view, you eventually decide, okay, actually everything my grandparents thought about the world is basically correct. And I should do that. Like it usually goes in the opposite direction. So um, yeah, hopefully she writes a book.
0: Yeah. Just to give an insight into the creativity of uh, of Caroline for people who haven't seen it, one quote on the Tumblr was, to be honest, I've come to decide the only acceptable style of poly is best characterized as something like an imperial Chinese harem. None of this non-hierarchical bullshit. Everyone should have a ranking of their partners. People should know exactly where they fall in the ranking, and there should be vicious power struggles for the ranks.
1: (laughs) Right now, we're in this kind of wonderful period where um, blogging existed a few years ago and doesn't really exist in the same form today. So there are just a reasonably number of prominent people where you can actually read just what were they thinking when they were 19. Who did they think they were? What were they like, et cetera? Like, what were their innermost thoughts? Um, it's obviously very embarrassing for everyone involved that this this happens, but it's a great resource for future historians because otherwise, like, we still you, you still get this with some historical figures because some people just wrote a lot and were very introspective. Um, I read a Napoleon biography recently that talks about all the embarrassing things he wrote as a teenager, and it's all you know very much the kinds of things you put on your semi-edgy Tumblr. But you know for a lot of other people, we just don't have any record of what they were thinking, what they were up to. you, you know they were born at some point and then at some point, much later on they are part of some system that wrote down you know who they were, what they were doing, et cetera. Uh, so that's that's nice. and I think that modern historians and biographers should be like, getting busy writing those books and profiling those people because this will be just um, this rare time where we get a really good snapshot of what someone was like. When they're young and then what uh,
0: what those traits predict for adulthood yeah like the, you know vivek uh Ramoswami is running for president I think he's like 38 or something i'm surprised there aren't people being like i matched on him with him on hinge and he said some bad like i think he's still a little too old for that like the next generation like five years younger they'll be like well know all their sort of you know worst party moments on instagram but also like people they've online dated with and they'll just be so much more
1: right but now people are pretty aware that a lot of this stuff, they're doing it in public and there has been this blurring, you know, people are more likely to save the spicy things for group chats and then, you know, the group chat norm is basically mutually assured destruction, like, you you know, um, you want to make sure everyone is being roughly equally embarrassing and so everyone has about as much to lose. Like probably in the future, the big debates on opposition research—it's going to be like how many layers of irony was this person on when they said that? Was it like
0: two layers? Was it five layers? And that's what they'll be debating. I want to segue to to crypto more broadly. Um, you know, there's this argument that it was really just what did Chamath call liquidity sponge or something? Just a levered bet on 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 markets. And so when markets were going were going good, crypto prices were going up. And when markets are bad. Crypto prices aren't going down, and and there's not a whole lot of usage. There, you know, some pockets of things. You know, friend tech most recently was consumer crypto thing that that is it was blowing up. But um, and if you believe that, then we're not likely to have another sort of bull, um, you know, crypto market until the macro improves, which could be could be quite a while, um, depending on on what you believe. Is is that in in that while this whole time this crypto sort of you know fascination over the last five years, AI was very quietly. You know people were building things that and you know then we got actual consumer applications that millions of people are using and it, it's kind of amazing that people are so focused on crypto and not that much on on ai and then this like quick you know uh, turnaround i guess is that broadly your your analysis of 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 what you know what of crypto more broadly in terms of what, what what's driving it and, and what to expect
1: crypto as a liquidity sponge um that's it's a weird one because there was a period basically up until about march of 2020 you really couldn't like i couldn't find things that correlated with crypto that were real world assets like it wasn't like rates go down and crypto doesn't have a yield so the cost of like the the negative carry on crypto has gone down so crypto goes up like That didn't happen it wasn't there wasn't a flight to safety thing like hey you know world's gonna end we're all buying swiss francs and gold and also bitcoin like that didn't happen um it it didn't go the other way of hey it's growth on and this is like this is even more of a tech thing than than nasdaq so when nasdaq goes up crypto goes up and then in march of 2020 crypto collapsed like everything else and um it had the same like the chart is pretty similar to the chart of just the nasdaq 100 since then, you know, with, with some more extremes, although there was that weird period where crypto was actually less volatile than equity or Bitcoin was less volatile than equities. But, um, yeah, it seems like the correlations have totally changed. And my guess is that part of what happened was if you if an investor finds a an asset that they think has some positive expected return or even a slightly negative expected return but is uncorrelated with everything else, they should allocate money to it. Like it does actually increase your risk-adjusted returns to – to buy something uncorrelated. And if you have some return hurdle and you allocate to some new thing that increases your risk adjusted returns, one thing you can do in response is increase your leverage. So I think that what was happening was some number of people were levered long crypto and equities. And so when they started getting margin calls during COVID, they were selling everything. And then um, there's definitely just been a lot more leverage introduced to the crypto ecosystem in you know since um, since 2019, I would say. Um, so like it, when it's a lot more levered, it tends to correlate with other things because it means that the the marginal Bitcoin trade is not just long Bitcoin; it's actually long Bitcoin, short dollars, or long Bitcoin, short you know yen, euro, whatever. Um, when you're borrowing, you're actually doing this um, this pair trade where you're trading you're shorting the currency that you're borrowing and um, a financial crisis is just, uh, it's a short squeeze in dollars. It's a wild bull market of dollars. And so, you know, if you just graph the dollar against anything else, the dollar's going up. And, um, of course, that's what happens in a short squeeze. Like, there are not enough dollars to go around, so everyone's buying desperately, and the way you buy, in that case, is you sell something else. So um, I think it just got it got wrapped into that, and that does make it much more liquidity-sensitive. You also have this dynamic of um, people manufacturing yields of variable quality in the DeFi ecosystem and to a like to some extent in the um in the centralized liquidity provision ecosystem. And when rates were zero, it was interesting that you could actually get a positive yield on something that was denominated in something sort of like a dollar. But um now you can do that quite trivially. Um, it's uh, yeah, there are lots of sources. You can you can farm lots and lots of yield with T bills. So it gets less exciting from that perspective, and less money flows in. So I do think you can view the 2020 and 2021 crypto cycle as very much a, a liquidity thing, also a boredom thing. I think this was Matt Levine's one of his great contributions was the boredom markets hypothesis of. You're stuck at home. You have completed Netflix. Like you watched the first video, you watched the last video, you have watched all the videos in between. You open up Robinhood, and then you look for the thing that's bouncing around the craziest. And you also have your stimulus check, so you, uh, yeah, you start buying. Um, and now, yeah, like more things have reopened, rates have gone up, so a lot of those exogenous drivers of crypto have gone away. It, so it does make sense that crypto crashed. I still think crypto is interesting as a te- as a technology. I think that Bitcoin is close to what you would get if you were trying to redesign gold from first principles. You're trying to create this trustworthy, easily transferable asset that is like the ultimate reserve currency. But for for Bitcoin to rep- actually has to reach a larger market value than gold because you can like when you're looking at reserve assets you basically treat the market cap of those assets as the market's expectation of which one of these is the true reserve asset and especially if they're all zero yield um so bitcoin has to um it has to go up to to actually replace gold but um for for any kind of market efficiency to hold given how much it has to go up it has to be very volatile or everyone would just sell their gold to buy bitcoin so you basically um to keep things kind of Intellectually consistent, you have to assume a lot of volatility for Bitcoin, and then um, the other crypto assets. You know they're they're kind of case by case. Like some of them were just scams from the beginning. Some of them um, de facto scams. Like if you have a project where there are a bunch of promised features, but it's not being maintained, then it has sort of become like it's a scam unless people are working on it. And so when they stop working on it, they become scammers, um, and you get you get like passive aggressively rugged so for those you you do have to evaluate them on a case-by-case basis and there was definitely a lot of liquidity just rushing into the system and a lot of memory and um, a lot of irresponsibility so um i i tend to spend less time on the other crypto assets because i always feel like i'm going to read you know a long white paper i'm going to try to find flaws in it if i can by the time i've done that the thing has already moved and traded and you know, it'll feel like it's too late. And I think for a lot of other crypto assets, it's just really hard to come up with a coherent explanation for why why should this have value and why is this not, you know, a service provided by some third party that is just charging for API calls or charging me a subscription. Um, like, you know, you could you could imagine a smart contract system that just does that where, you know, I go to facebook.com slash smart contract and, um, you know, sign some deal with someone and Facebook just provides the Oracle service for it. So I don't know that crypto is the right medium for for some of those things. On the other hand, it is. what's nice about it is that it's composable. It's hard to make it less open after the fact. So you don't have this dynamic of everyone's open when they're growing. They get closed when they reach their steady state. And then you can't build cool stuff on the project. You can just kind of be a, a, a sharecropper for that company's distribution and not make great returns. Um, I think crypto is resistant to that. So um, I think there's like... There is this. There's always this lurking possibility that just a lot of the a lot of the digital world moves onto some crypto substrate over time. But it's um it's sort of like the way you know things moved onto the the internet that were not previously on the internet, but they did so in a way that was um pretty much invisible to the marginal the marginal consumer, like the marginal late adopter who just. Was not really aware that the internet was a thing. They they don't know what an IP address is. They don't need to know anything about the protocols. So, you know, as long as as long as people in crypto are talking about things like hashing or smart contracts or anything anything like that, Merkle trees. Like, as long as that is something that they talk about, consumer adoption is really hard. Um, so you you have this sort of depressing bull case where Twitter, like, sorry, where um, where crypto adoption happens and nobody knows or cares except the crypto nerds but at least they get rich because at least they have the the token economics of if you think this technology is cool and the token has some kind of economics related to its usage you buy a bunch of the token and then you evangelize and sometimes it just makes you really annoying um there's there is that theory that it's um it is basically an emergent ponzi scheme but um, it's also just an emergent way to, to bootstrap a business with, with some serious drawbacks. Like one drawback of, um, the tokenomics thing is you have no idea what your cost of customer acquisition is. And so you don't actually know what your unit economics look like. And you don't know if you have a real business cause you can always just buy growth with tokens. But, um, I understand that there are solutions being worked on for that as well.
0: Yeah. Our friend Antonio Garcia Martinez is, uh, Gotta do something there well with that we are we're, we're at time that was a good overview um, and, a, and a great first episode in, in the next one I uh, I plan to go into a couple of your other pieces and also talk about mark andreessen's uh you know techno optimism uh, manifesto and the conversation that that's spawning around sort of what is Silicon Valley ideology what is sort of the intra Silicon Valley uh sort of you know intellectual fights that, that are occurring so with that burn thanks so much for for coming on and excited to continue this was fun all right talk to you later Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars. And check out Byrne's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already.